We just completed a preaching cohort here at Four Oaks where about eight members of the church, all men, were, were trained in the theology and the mechanics of preaching. Now, in the world of sermon preparation, there is this thing called a proposition statement. A proposition statement. It's called a prop. A prop is like a one-line soundbite. A prop is a crisp summary of the central idea of the passage and then the claim that it's supposed to make upon us as believers. A prop is where the preacher kind of takes all of the complexity of the passage and simplifies it. He simplifies the complex. And he does that by excavating all the way down to the original intention of the original author, to the original audience. And then hopefully, if he's seeking to do his job, he'll build a a bridge from that original audience all the way into the life of the person sitting in the chair or sitting in the pew. Now, that proposition isn't always shared to the congregation in the context of the message, but it is work that a, a reasonable preacher should always engage in when it comes to preparation, because it's the work of making the complex simple. Now, one of the things I love about this passage of Scripture is that it comes with its own factory-installed proposition. And it's found in verse 17 when Paul says, Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I can't improve upon that as the central idea for this message. That is as crisp a summary as we are going to receive And our goal now in studying this section is to discover how Paul's prior comments deliver him to that conclusion, how Paul's prior thoughts deliver him to that particular proposition. But before we do that, we have to answer the curious question of context, Because ever since we've started this study of 2 Corinthians, we have continually encountered this idea of boasting. If you were to study 1 Corinthians, you would encounter the same concept. Boasting is all over the place. So I want to address first the question of why does boasting come up so much with the Corinthians? You know, in 2016, boasting is is considered either socially taboo, and that is if you have no religious upbringing, Or it's a display of pride, if you do have some kind of religious upbringing. But what we have to appreciate and understand is that Paul is coming from a dramatically different world. And he's speaking to a completely different culture. Because for the Corinthians, the question of how do you define greatness, how do you define success would be answered in a dramatically different way than it would for us. Because for the Corinthians and for this particular culture, that answer would include the idea of the eloquence of speakers, people that use clever words, and people that in particular use these kind of self-exalting phrases that Paul calls boasting. 
That meant the cultural superstars with, among the Corinthians and in the city of Corinth were not the, the Hollywood elite, they were not the entertainers, but they were those who were most effective at self-promotion, which is why 1 Corinthians chapter 1 begins with Paul talking about where are the scribes, where are the debaters of this age, where are the wise, because those are the ones that had prominence within the, the Corinthian culture, those with, with sparkling rhetoric those that were capable of really outlandishly audacious self-references, these intellectual self-exalters, those were the celebrities within the culture. They symbolized greatness. That was what the Corinthians valued. They boasted. And boasting shaped what the Corinthians saw as worthy. Now, the challenge that's behind 2 Corinthians is that for Paul... This is still what the Corinthian church values. And though the Corinthians had come out of the world, the world had not yet completely come out of them. And so they were still valuing the wrong thing, which is what made them vulnerable to these false teachers, these these intruders that came in from the outside, just promoting themselves and exalting themselves and boasting in themselves. And so for the Corinthians, the Corinthian problem was that they had become so attuned to hearing the celebration of men, in other words, the celebration of human ability, that they had no category for the idea of boasting in God. And so Paul is trying to address them in this section, and and this is Paul's clarion cry. This is the main point that he's trying to get across to them, and that's the one that's summarized in verse 17. Let the one who boasts... Boast in the Lord. Now, this is one of those places where God totally surprises us. Because just when you think he's going to come down on the idea of boasting, just when you think he's going to land hard on boasting, he's going to call it out. He's going to outlaw it. He's going to say it's wrong. It's toxic. We discover that God not only doesn't forbid boasting, but he redeems it. And brings it under in his kingdom and under his leadership and rulership. And so Paul in this section is uncaging a revolutionary idea. And that is this idea of biblical boasting. And boasting is biblical when Jesus is exalted. In fact, a better way to say it is that boasting is biblical when Jesus, not me, but Jesus is exalted. So Paul is calling the Corinthians to discern what biblical boasting is and then to engage in biblical boasting. So so let's think about, let's look at the text and seek to understand what specifically makes boasting biblical. And I have three points. So boasting is biblical when, number one, we boast in what God supplied. We boast in what God supplied. So Paul starts in verse 7 saying, Corinthians, look at what is before your eyes. Now that's, of course, that's just Paul's way of saying, Corinthians, wake up. Corinthians, open your eyes. And then he he continues in verse 7. If anyone is confident that he is Christ, let him remind himself that just as he is Christ, so also are we. For even if I boast a little too much of our authority, which the Lord gave for building you up and not for destroying you, 
I will not be ashamed. Okay, let me just stop there. This is basically what Paul is saying here. He's saying, Corinthians, if you think you are elite Christians because of how you think God works among you, because of the gifts that you have, because of the way that you roll, Paul's saying, then I can make the same claim. And we, we don't know exactly what Paul had in mind there, when he, whether he was thinking about the road to Damascus where he saw Jesus, or whether he was thinking about the fact that he was the first one converted of all of them. His conversion goes back way before the Corinthians. Or whether he's thinking about the fact that because of his ministry, the Corinthian church exists to begin with, we don't really know. But basically what Paul is saying is, if I wanted to boast, I would not be wrong. I would not be ashamed. But I'm going to boast in what God gave me to serve you. That's what I'm going to boast in, in what God gave me to serve you. See, this is where the first feature of biblical boasting begins to surface, that Paul is boasting in what God supplied to him and through him to them. And so he goes on, beginning in verse 9. He says, I do not want to appear to be frightening you with my letters, for they say the letters are weight, his letters are weighty and strong, his bodily presence is weak. Let such a person understand that what we say by letter when absent, we do when present. Not that we dare to classify ourselves or compare ourselves with some of those who are commending themselves, but when they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. Okay, so this is what Paul's saying now. He's saying, listen, they tear me down with mocking. They say I'm weak. They say my bodily presence is weak, that I can't speak. But make no mistake, Paul's saying, I'm not a self-important boaster, you know, speaking these empty words with empty threats, but I can deliver on what I say. And even the threat that I've made to you, I can deliver on that threat. But basically he's saying, listen, folks, I want you to discern, I want you to understand, we're not like these self-congratulating blowhards that are circulating among you and influencing you, who reveal their ignorance by their boasting. And so what Paul's doing now is he's beginning to train the Corinthians. He's saying, wake up, open your eyes, take a look, begin to discern what you're hearing from these folks. And the way that what they say turns attention to themselves rather than to God. So he's trying to train them. He's trying to get the Corinthians to use their discernment to help them to comprehend what true spirituality is really all about, which is why he began this whole section by saying, open your eyes, look at what is before your eyes. So Paul goes on to say in verse 12, listen, I'm not going to stoop to compare myself with others. And you know why he says that? Because it would reveal that I am, and he says in verse 12, without understanding. They are without understanding. So now Paul is is coming against a facet of the Corinthian communication and a facet of the false leaders' communication where they're, they're never talking about God, but they're always referencing each other and always comparing themselves with each other. And it's not that all comparisons are wrong. Um, You know, we're not trying to come up with a theology of comparison that says that's evil. 
You know, the book of Hebrews encourages us to be imitators of those who have gone before us. Paul tells Timothy to set an example for those who would believe. When you talk about being an imitator, set an example, obviously you're thinking about somebody else's lifestyle and you're comparing yourself and trying to improve in, in some area. But the idea here is that there is a way that comparison can corrupt the soul. And comparison corrupts the soul when people become the exclusive focal point for what we're comparing ourselves to. When it's just all about people, when people are the main thing that we're thinking about. Because it unveils that part of our heart that just has this insatiable desire to always look good in front of others, to always appear respectable, to always be credible. You know, when my kids were young, like most kids, they had bikes. And so I wanted to ride with them on a bike, and so I bought a bike, but it was a bike that was like so far over my head and so far over my biking competence because it had like 175 different you know, gear shifts on it, and I didn't know what I was doing. But I got it, and it, was, it arrived, and so I immediately turned to my son Tyler. I said, let's have a race around the block. First one back to the house wins the Harvey Grand Prix. And so he takes off, and I get on my bike, and I'm trying to, I'm trying to get into the gear, and I'm just you know, spinning, the, spinning the sprocket, and it's not going anywhere, and I'm trying to shift between, and finally I engage it, and he makes the first left, and I'm about 20 feet behind him. And so by that time, though, I'm beginning to get a hang of how the thing works, and I'm starting to pedal, and I start hitting the gear, and 47th gear, and 66th gear, and 88th gear, and I'm, I'm sorry, I, I, we, he moves left, goes parallel on the road just behind us, and I'm starting to catch up to him. And we go into the third turn, and we're really, I mean, we're going to you know, 60, 70, 80 miles per hour, hairs flying back all over the place, and, and we go into the last turn, and he pulls ahead. Now, keep in mind, this is a kid who's on a bike with one gear. Okay, but he's pedaling like crazy, and I'm going into 167 gear and 188 gear. And, and he pulls ahead of me about five feet. And I realize in that moment, there's only one way I'm going to win. And that is if I cut off the distance between myself and the garage by jumping up over the curb and getting to the garage first. <clears throat> Now, this was in Philadelphia. Like, I grew up in Pittsburgh where curbs were, were round and smooth. But this was in Philadelphia where curbs were like drill sergeants. They're square and hard and punishing. And so I, I came upon the curb, and I pulled up about a foot too early, which meant that I came down right on the edge of the curb. Let me, let me just put it this way. When I woke up, <laughs> the wheel looked like a Pac-Man. You know, it was three-quarters of the way around and then a big mouth right in there. And so I hit the curb, and I had this sensation of just floating through the air. You know, I hadn't had that sensation in years. I think the last time I had it was drug-induced. You know, just floating through the air. Boom! And I didn't remember anything until... Tyler's face was right over mine. He's saying, Dad, are you okay? Dad, are you okay? Now listen, this is what I want you to hear. Before I knew whether I was brain damaged, 
before I knew whether I was paralyzed, before I knew whether I would be like, you know, blinking I love you to Kim for the rest of my life because I couldn't speak anymore, I lifted my head up, I looked both ways, and I said to myself, I sure hope nobody saw that. (laughs) Because we have this insatiable desire to look good before others. People can oftentimes be our only point of reference, and that's where comparison corrupts. And it doesn't really matter whether it's an unfavorable comparison. Comparisons can be unfavorable where we look at other people and we just tank. You know, we look at their Facebook, we look at Instagram, and we compare our boring lives with the illusion of excitement that they're trying to create by what they post on Facebook. Or or maybe we find a friend that has passed some great milestone and they got the award or... They graduated, or she's pregnant, you know, something that we want, that they're getting, and we tank. It's depressing. It's disillusioning. So it can be an unfavorable comparison, or even a favorable comparison where, you know, we're working hard to change our habits and eating right, and we're exercising all the time, and we're losing weight. And then we see this loser who's overweight Stuffing his face with junk food while he's smoking a cigarette. Only exercise he gets at all are the laps to and from the kitchen, to and from the refrigerator. And we judge them and we feel superior to them. Like the Pharisee in the temple who sees the tax collector and says, thank God I'm not like that. Thank God I tithe and I fast all the time. See, there's a way that some people live life where other people in their life are the mirror, where they look in it and they say, mirror, mirror on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? It is, it is me. See, that was the false teachers. That was some of the Corinthians. Constantly comparing themselves with other people to feel better about themselves. And the problem is, when we don't have Jesus in that picture, that comparison becomes the seed of discontent. You know what discontent is? Discontent is basically forgetting what God supplied. That's the point that we're making. We're talking about boasting in what God supplied. Discontent is forgetting what God supplied. We'll never become content by comparing ourselves to others who are either better off or worse off. Because contentment isn't a horizontal thing. We cannot get contentment by looking to the left or looking to the right. We can only achieve contentment by looking up and remembering what the gospel provides for us, remembering God's love for us, remembering who Jesus is. In other words, we'll find contentment by comparing what we have to what our sins deserved. We find contentment by remembering the gospel. See, the gospel arrives in our hearts each and every day and reminds us that there was a time that we were spiritually wretched, that we were lost, that we were miserable, broken beings, that we were utterly destitute before God. And what's worse is that we were pridefully clinging to that place and irrationally committed to our own destruction. But God, who is rich in mercy, 
came to us in the person of Jesus Christ and wrenched us free from the irrational commitment that we have to our own destruction. And so the gospel comes to us with this amazing news that meets us on the days where our comparisons are favorable and on the days where our comparisons are unfavorable, on the days that our comparisons bring us down and on the days that our comparisons make us sail. You know, on the days that brings us down, the gospel reveals to us on bad days that, hey, no worries, Christ has already measured up on your behalf. In fact, the good news is you're far worse than you think. But Jesus is far better than you can ever imagine. And he, he satisfied all of the demands of his law, of God's law. And when God looks at you, he no longer sees you, but he sees the perfect righteousness of Christ upon you. And that elicits his approval upon you. So it reveals that to us on our bad days. And then on our good days, we are reminded that, hey, you know, our righteousness is like filthy rags. You know, the, the best things that we do in life are shot through with sin and contain something of which needs to be forgiven. So we live grateful and satisfied, not because we compare favorably or we compare poorly, but because at the cross, we have received far more than we deserve. And this helps us to do then what Paul did, and that is to boast in what God supplied in us and what God supplies through us. So that's the first facet of of biblical boasting. We know that boasting is biblical when we boast in what God supplied. Secondly, we know that boasting is biblical when we boast in what God achieved. God achieved. Look at verse 13. But we will not boast beyond limits, but we will boast only with regard to the area of influence God has assigned to us to reach even to you. We're not overextending ourselves as though we did not reach you. We're not the first to come, or we were the first to come all the way to you with the gospel. We're not going to boast beyond limit in the labors of others, but our hope is that as your faith increases, our area of influence among you is going to be enlarged as well so that we can preach the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of work already done in another's areas of influence. And then he, he kind of punctuates the whole thing by summarizing all he's saying in verse 17, that the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So let me just kind of drill this. Let, let me try to consolidate this, maybe a, you know, a, a, an addition for dummies, which is what I need to be able to think about this clearly. So this is what Paul's saying. If boasting becomes necessary... It should be accurate, and it should be rooted in real fruit from God. Just like our role in your existence. So he's saying, just like the way God used us to bring the Corinthian church into existence. He's saying, you heard the gospel from me. I am your spiritual father. I can boast in that, and that boast is rooted in reality and in tangible fruit. You see what's happening here? See, here Paul is boasting in what God achieved in the Corinthians through gospel mission. Paul's saying, I'm not going to boast beyond my limits. 
I'm not going to exaggerate. I'm not going to overstate my importance. I'm not going to inflate the impact that I've had upon you or upon other people. In fact, he's really going to run at this in chapter 12. I can't wait until we get into chapter 11 and chapter 12 because he really begins to run at this even stronger. He says very explicitly in chapter 12, quote, Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. I want you to think about that for a second. I mean, here we encounter a guy that's actually concerned that people are going to think more of him. I mean, you know you're getting God's whole point on boasting when you're concerned that people are going to think too much of you than too little of you. Because if you're anything like me, your preoccupying concern is people aren't giving me enough credit, not that I'm getting too much. And yet Paul's saying, I want people to evaluate me based upon what they see in me and hear from me. That's what I want to be the metrics. Now, what I'm about to say is not intended as a political comment or political commentary. But while Donald Trump's campaign has pushed forward the issue of national security in what I believe personally is a necessary way, it is undeniable that boasting is a feature, an established feature of his leadership and an historic feature of his leadership. The most recent example being the tweet after the attacks in Pakistan where he, he tweeted, quote, another radical Islamic attack, this time in Pakistan, targeting Christian women and children, at least 67 dead, 400 injured. I alone can solve Donald Trump. Now, if you're hearing a Trump supporter, don't be concerned. This is not a trash Trump moment. If you're here as a believer, you know that you are accustomed to thinking within the category of humility. And when you hear a statement like that, it can sound outrageous. It can sound alarming. What I want to get you thinking about is, is just pay attention to how statements like that are playing out within the culture around you. Because people are not concerned about outrageous statements. Pay attention to the degree with which that is appealing to people. And the question that I want us to wrestle with is, is that because our country is becoming more enlightened, or is that because our country is becoming more Corinthian? Paul says, open your eyes. Look at what is before your eyes. Paul says, with me, there is never an I alone. See, for Paul, it's always God alone. God gave me, God gave you life through me, he's telling the Corinthians. He may be a father to you, but if I'm going to boast, I'm going to boast only in what God actually achieved, and that's going to make my boast in the Lord, not myself. But there's actually a, a second part to, to this verse 16, where Paul Paul makes a statement about extending the reach 
of gospel ministry. He says, so that we may preach in the gospel in lands beyond you without boasting of the work. And this is so interesting. Without boasting of the work already done in another's area of influence. So again, you know, consolidating this done, uh, just trying to simplify it. Paul's saying, in fact, our hope is that the fruit in you will result in more fruit. And then he adds this other thought. Without stealing credit for the work done by another. Without stealing credit from the work done by another. See, this is where we begin to see something about Paul where he's very tenacious. He's very fastidious. And that is this this tenacious ethic of honor that he seems to have. See, Paul's goal is he wants to make sure that first God is honored and he wants to make sure that he is not honored for things he should not be honored for. He's not honored, for instance, for the work of others. Now, this is where Paul's leadership is becoming diametrically opposed from the intruders and some of the Corinthian believers. He's the exact opposite. These other guys, they have, they'll do anything to get credit. Paul's saying, I don't want credit for anything except that which I'm truly owed, and then when I'm given that, I'm going to offer it up to God. And so he's, he's turning boasting up, you know, kind of upside down. And I think to understand where he's coming from, we, we really have to recognize that when a person is boasting, they're really giving expression to what they love out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we boast in what we love. Nobody tells a proud father, hey, right now, why don't you say something commendable about your kids? No, you know, it just, it just flows. It's just nobody tells a fiancé to, to, to talk a bit about her intended because it's just flowing. It's the overflow of, of the heart. So when we boast about God's work in us or in others and through others, we are really boasting about God. The point is that the subject is God and others. It's not ourselves. But there is a way that God is glorified when we're honoring God's work in other people, when we're honoring how God works in and through others. I brought a quote with me this morning from Sam Crabtree, who wrote a book called Practicing Affirmation. This would be one of those books that I'd recommend it to everyone. Everyone should read this book, Practicing Affirmation. He said the following, quote, God is glorified in us, when we affirm the work he has done and is doing in others. Now, think about that. It's not just that, you know, this generic sense when God is glorified when we, when we magnify the work that he's done. It's the work that he's doing and has done in people. We're oriented to calling attention to that, to pointing that out, to being grateful for that, to helping other people connect the dots with that to encouraging people with the things that God is doing within them. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you known to be reluctant to encourage others? Maybe you have this whole theology of why you don't encourage. You want to be judicious. You don't want it to breed a false esteem. You know, there's certain ways that we can get there where we feel like we have to be 
careful in how we encourage. But, but, but with Paul, we just see him relating to the Corinthians with all of their baggage and problems and all the screwed up ways that they're thinking, but he's always moving toward them, looking for the areas where God is at work, and he's pulling that out, and he's celebrating that, even though they're the Corinthians, worst church in the New Testament. But he makes some amazing statements about them in First and Second Corinthians that you think, where is that coming from? Let me ask you another question. Are you persistent about giving credit where credit is due? You know what sin does? Sin makes us all plagiarists. It makes us all those who are willing to kind of swipe, steal concepts, ideas, different things, use other people without crediting other people. And so, you know, are we the kind of person that's just comfortable representing other people's ideas, if they were our own ideas, as if we are the origin of all of the bright things that we say? Or is there a sense that when people touch our life, they're aware that there's a community of people that we're connected to, and and there's a community of people that we read about that have, have influence to us? Because, I mean, let's face it, there are very few original ideas. And we are all products of the community that we are in. But with something like this, the devil's always in the details. I heard, I heard a preacher once say that the way most people think is that they'll, they'll read something or they'll hear something, and they'll first time they'll say, you know, John Smith once said, and then the second time they'll say, you know, I heard a guy say once. And then the, the third time they'll say, you know, I was thinking the other day how it just kind of, it slowly bends and morphs to where we are the origin of all of the brilliant things that we say, and we're not scrupulous whatsoever to boast in another person's work. I remember preaching once, and a, a mentor was there while I was preaching, and at the conclusion of my preaching, he asked me why I was repeating things he said without ascribing them to him. And I remember thinking, I I think because I never expected you to be listening. (laughs) And then I'm, I'm, I'm astonished that you would remember what you said because I could barely remember. And if you're wondering, boy, that must have been awkward. It was beyond awkward. It was embarrassing. I was ashamed. But you know what? As I, as I prayed and I thought about it, I realized, you know, that is just my pride. It it really was my pride. Because I realized there's a part of my heart that just wants to appear as if God is the source of all that I am. I'm not in any way dependent upon other people because that would lower my stock. And so I want it to be about my relationship, my connection with God. I want to be that super spiritual person that doesn't ever reference the people around them or the influence that other people are making, but it's just all about me and God because that would elevate how people would view me. And yet we encounter 2 Corinthians and we realize that the most humble people in the church are the ones who are often heard celebrating other people. People that are making much of others. People that are willing to cite the influences over them. Because they've learned to boast in the right thing. They've learned to boast not only in what God supplied, but in what God achieved 
in them and through them. That's point number two. And then point number three is biblical boasting is when we boast in what God commends. What we boast that God commends. And this again goes to the summary of what Paul's saying in verse 13. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. For it is not the one who commends himself who is approved. Isn't that a convicting statement? It's not the one who commends himself. But the one whom the Lord commends. Now here's what's really exciting. Is that. This whole thing, where this whole thing is going is now in these last few sentences in chapter 10, Paul is setting up what he's going to be saying in chapters 11 and 12. He's he's going to pull the veil back on all of his suffering. And he's going to reveal to us that the Lord does not commend one who is self-sufficient, that the Lord does does not commend one who's always talking about themselves. He does not commend the one who is proud or boasting And this is where he's headed. The Lord commends those who know they are weak. That's where this is going. So this chapter 10 becomes the jumping off point into chapter 11 and chapter 12, where Paul is going to speak about countless beatings. He's going to talk about how five times he received 40 lashes minus one, the great 39 lashes, three times beaten with rods, once he was stoned at at uh, adrift in a ship or outside of the ship in the water. He's going to talk about how he, he went to the third heaven, but what he got for it was a thorn in the flesh. In other words, the crux of his defense is going to come into focus all the more in chapters 11 and 12, where he's going to make this fundamental point. Listen, intruders, Listen, super apostles, listen, Corinthian church, my suffering shows my weakness. I'm not like you, Mr. Super Apostle. I'm not boastful and self-confident and popular and comfortable and self-satisfied. I'm not like that at all. I've suffered greatly for what I believe. I feel pressure. I experience anxiety. That's one of the things Paul says in chapter 12 and, or in chapter 11. He says, beyond all of that, beyond all my sufferings, there's the anxiety I feel for the churches. Paul's saying, I feel pressure. I experience anxiety. I am a man of weakness. You want me to boast? That's my story. See, this is where, where Paul goes. And what he's doing is just blowing the minds of the Corinthians. You, we have to appreciate just what's landing in the middle of the Corinthian church as he says these things. Listen to this quote by Paul Bar- Barnett where he talks about this from his commentary on 2 Corinthians. He says, quote, In what must have been a daring exercise in antiquity, Paul takes the literary convention of boasting and inverts it. He turns it upside down. His boast is in his folly, his weakness, his disappointment, and defeat. Now you ask, why is Paul doing this? Why why does he go there? And the answer is, because this approach magnifies not his abilities, but his dependence. Paul, because of his approach, is not glorified. God, because of Paul's approach, is glorified. That's the point. And so I guess the question that it raises for all of us is, what 
What do we boast in? What do you boast in? Is it the sacrifices that you make for the family or, or to live the life that you live? Or maybe the places that you've traveled? Or Are you one of those name-dropping people that you know, just kind of likes to talk about the people you know? Maybe it's, you know, it, this comes into the nuances of life. So sometimes, you know, people can be boasting about how little they paid for something as if they're, you know, always getting a deal and they're always able to kind of manipulate things so it makes them look good. Or what about our kids? I mean, isn't that the, the most prominent one? I have four kids. Oldest is 29, youngest is 19. If someone were to ask me to recite one of the most important lessons that I've ever learned in my life, it would be that I thought parenting was going to portray my strengths, never realizing that God had ordained it to reveal my weaknesses. I thought parenting was going to portray my strengths, never realizing that God had ordained it to alter my boasting, to redirect my boasting. Listen, some of you think your curse, that, 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 that your curse is the weakness that you live with. Not realizing that it is the very place that you learn the most about God. It is the very place that you learn the most about the gospel. It is the very place that you learn the most about weakness. And we see this in parenting all the time. You know, in a family that, with multiple kids, inevitably... God often gives that one child who is like most inclined toward God. You know, it's almost like they popped out converted. And they're just a delight to parent. And, the, you know, the father comes home and the child says, Dad, I'm so glad you're home. I've been thinking about you all day and I, I've been meditating on Scripture for the last couple of hours in the original language, in the Greek. But it led me to think about how much I love you and I didn't feel like I could communicate it adequately with my words, so I decided to write it in this six-page letter here. (laughs) And then inevitably, in a family with multiple kids, there'll be another kid. And that's the kid that beats that one up all the time (laughs) and can't stand that one. And creates nothing but problems. And the issue is, this kid over here makes you look far better than you are as a parent. And this kid over here makes you look far worse than you are as a parent. But here's what I want to say about that. That compliant child over there will inspire your gratitude toward God. But this other one that's reckless and colors outside the lines, that kid will teach you the gospel. That kid will teach you what to boast in. That kid will teach you about weakness. We cry out, God, this is driving me crazy. Why won't you change them? God says, I will, but I'm going to change you first. And then we'll work on changing them. But right now, you're the project. You're the first one. God says, let me introduce you to your tutor for weakness. Let me introduce you to the tutor in your life who through whom you're going to learn the most about the gospel and through whom I'm going to alter your boast. Yeah, it's that child that just went running up the steps, slammed the door, and is screaming at you from the second floor, which you don't have because you live in Florida. 
that child will teach you the gospel. See, it's, a, it's as if Paul was looking down. He's sitting across from us this morning with coffee, and he's looking at us in the eye, and he's saying, listen, this is what I want to say to you. The lessons of weakness is so important to God that he will take that which elates you, which is where he's headed in chapter 12. He's saying, I went to the third heaven, but to keep me from being so elated about that, God gave me a thorn. God's saying, I'm going to take that which elates you, your marriage, your kids, your leadership, your job. I'm going to take that which elates you and reshape it into a lesson of dependence to alter your boasting. I'm going to teach you weakness through that. And I get it. Believe me, I get it. Because you think, yeah, I had no idea when I was walking down the aisle with him that this was about a lesson of dependence. I had no idea that when I was holding that child in my hands that God was going to introduce me to desperation through my relationship with this child, that God takes some of the highest earthly experiences that we can have, marriage and parenting and leadership and running a business and all of those other things to teach us. God takes some of the highest earthly experiences we can have to teach us our greatest need for Him. To teach us a lesson that can only be learned in no other way. And that is the lesson that let the one who boasts, oh, boast in the Lord. And if that intrigues you, if you're sitting here and saying, oh, I need to hear more about that. I need to hear, no, I need to know that better. I need to understand that better. Then you'll just have to come back next week when we plow into chapter 11.